Hey creeps, I'm Taylor and this is TGI Crime Day. Welcome to episode 12. I can't believe I'm already on episode 12. I know that's not that many, but it seems like a lot to me. As always, I appreciate you for being here. Thank you for clicking on this episode. Last weekend, I put up a question bubble over on Instagram and asked what you would like to hear, and I got a few great suggestions, but today's Creep Squad request came from an Instagram follower whose name is at the Flake Files, and I have definitely heard of Mara Murray's case before, but there have been a few updates over the last couple of years, and I wanted to kind of put everything together into one episode. Mara Murray went Mara Murray went missing um, in February of 2004, and her case has been called quote the first mystery of the social media age because she actually went missing just a few days after Facebook launched, and since then it's been the topic of countless message boards and blog posts full of speculation and theories. Mara's case has never lost traction, and her family deserves answers. Keeping these cases in the public eye through social media might seem kind of strange, and a lot of people don't get it. But I think since you're listening to this podcast, you do get it. There have been so many murders solved or reopened because of social media going crazy and demanding justice. People don't just disappear into thin air, and there are some pretty compelling leads in Mara's case. The thing that's so tricky and intriguing with this case is that there are a few elements that may or may not be important. And I'll explain that a little more as we get into them, but with there being so much speculation on this case, it can be really hard to weed through all of the random comments and endless Reddit threads when you first Google Mara Murray, which is why... I wanted to put my best Googling skills to the test and really search for the facts and dig deep. So I've done my best to compile all of that info into an easy to follow timeline, hopefully easily to follow timeline. So follow along. Let's get into the journey. Mara Murray was born on May 4th, 1982 to Fred and Lori Murray. She had one older brother, two older sisters, and one younger brother. Her family lived in Hanson, Massachusetts in a small suburb on the South Shore. Mara's parents eventually divorced when she was six years old, and she mainly lived with her mom, Lori. Mara was extremely smart from a young age, and she graduated from Whitman Hanson Hanson High School uh, at the top of her class. She had multiple different scholarship options, both for her academic achievements and her athletic talents. Mara played a bunch of different sports, including basketball and track. She won multiple awards and was great at every sport she played. Mara not only kicked ass in sports and school, she also was a very kind person with a sweetheart, and when you see pictures of Mara, she always had this gorgeous, huge smile on her face. When she graduated high school, she had her pick of colleges, but decided to join her sister Julie at the United States Military Academy at West Point. From what I understand, there is quite a process that goes into getting into this academy, and even just the application process for the Military Academy. It's a very competitive program, so... The fact that Julie and Mara both got in is very impressive, and these girls were working hard. Mara excelled again academically and athletically at the academy. She did cross-country and track. Can't relate. I am not made for running. You guys that are runners and are love it and are good at it, I just applaud you because running is literally my nightmare. I, it's making me anxious right now. I don't have to run anywhere. Calm down. Anyway, Mara was doing very big things and had a ton of different career options ahead of her. She actually decided to pursue a career in nursing instead of the military. She transferred to the University of Amherst, um, sorry, the University of Massachusetts Amherst her junior year. It's been speculated that there was an incident that could have led to Mara almost getting kicked out of the military academy, and it's possible that she chose to transfer schools before that action could be taken. According to some sources, Mara stole makeup from a commissary, 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 
commissary. Why can I not say that word? A commissary. I swear I'm not an idiot. She stole makeup from a commissary at the military academy and was given an honor code violation that could have eventually led to her being kicked out of school. And I say that this is speculation because this incident is talked about quite a bit and it seems that she definitely did get caught stealing, but I hesitated mentioning that there was proof that she could have possibly been kicked out of school because that's the part where the speculation kind of comes in. But it's been talked about so much that I wanted to make sure that I mentioned it here because it does show a pattern of habits because she, spoiler alert, is going to get caught stealing later on again. Once Mara transferred to UMass, she ran into a couple of other bumps. Overall, it seemed like Mara was a happy person, but she struggled just like anybody else. Mara was attending her classes and living on campus in a dorm. She also had a job at a security desk at one of the other buildings on campus. And in November of 2003, a few months before she disappeared, Mara was actually caught using a stolen credit card to order a bunch of food to be sent to her dorm. When she was caught, she was given three months of probation. Mara said that she got the credit card number from a receipt that she found in a bathroom on campus. Is that a thing? Were they seriously putting the entire credit card number on receipts in 2003? That seems like a terrible idea. Not that it matters, because wherever she got the information, she got caught using this stolen card. Uh, but the charges would be dropped after three months of good behavior. A few months later, on February 4th, 2004, Mara was working her job at her security desk when she suddenly became extremely emotional. Mara's job was basically to check IDs for people coming into the building, but she wasn't responding to people who were walking in. She was just sitting there completely zoned out. And eventually her supervisor noticed that something was up and asked her what was going on. And at first Mara was unresponsive and she just sat there like staring straight forward. Then she suddenly burst into tears and the only thing that she would say was, my sister. Her supervisor quickly realized Mara wouldn't be able to finish her shift that night and told her that she could head home early and even walked with her to her dorm. And I just have to say, I love that woman for doing that because not everyone would respond that way. I'm sure we've all had jobs. You know what I'm talking about. You could literally be bleeding from your eyes and they'd be like, sorry, we just really need you to be here. Anyways, Mara's supervisor was awesome and she walked her to her dorm and she asked her if she would be okay for the night. And Mara told her that she would be fine because her roommate was home which was very odd because Mara didn't have a roommate. Later, it was discovered that Mara had been on the phone with her sister Kathleen that evening while she was at work. And apparently, Kathleen had recently been released from rehab. And when Kathleen was on the phone with Mara, they had talked about Kathleen's um, relationship with her fiancé, and they were having all these problems. And then she also found out that her fiancé had taken Kathleen to a liquor store. Um, and apparently... It was years later in 2017 that Kathleen publicly said that this was what that phone call had been about. For a long time, she just said that she couldn't remember the call and didn't know what would have made her so upset. And people speculate that Mara was upset because her sister had basically relapsed and she was really upset and really worried about her. But on the other hand, a lot of people speculate, like, would that really put her into this, like, canatonic state where she can't speak or acknowledge anyone around her? Again, this is one of those things in this case that makes people go down wild rabbit holes because it could be a huge piece in this puzzle, or it might mean nothing. There's also some speculation that Mara used this phone call as an excuse because she didn't want to explain what was really going on and why she was actually so upset. So hypothetically, her supervisor could have asked her, hey, what's going on? And she just said, my sister, because it was the first thing she thought of. Again, grasping for straws, hoping to find some kind of an answer, or is that what happened? And did it play into what happened next? On Saturday, February 7th, Mara's dad, Fred, went to UMass to visit her for the weekend and do some car shopping. 
Mara was driving a 1996 Saturn that had always been described as like kind of a clunker. It was constantly having issues and breaking down, but it hadn't been a huge problem because Mara lived and worked on campus, so she didn't have to drive it a ton. But she decided to start looking at some new options, so Fred went with her to look at some cars, but she didn't end up getting anything new that day. From what I understand, Fred had been getting out cash from ATMs over the few days before he got to um, UMass with Mara, and I guess he had some money with him, but there wasn't enough for them to get a car. There's a few different stories of why they didn't get a car that day, but bottom line, no car was bought that day. That evening, Fred and Mara went to dinner with one of Mara's friends, Katie, and this is another thing that comes up all the time for some reason in this case. It's speculated that Mara and Fred didn't go car shopping that weekend. Apparently, they didn't mention car shopping to any of her friends, and even the friend that they went to dinner with had no idea Mara had been looking for a new car. People find this odd and think that it's weird that she didn't talk about wanting to get a new car, but I honestly don't see how it really plays into the big picture. But again, it's mentioned enough that I wanted to let you know about it. After dinner, Fred took Mara and Katie to a liquor store for them to buy some alcohol for a party that they were going to on campus that night, and Mara and Katie dropped Fred off at his hotel, and he let Mara borrow his brand new Toyota Corolla, and she and Katie headed to a party at their friend Sarah's apartment. Sarah's apartment was on campus, so I will agree with people who ask this question. Why would Fred let Mara borrow his car to go from his motel to a campus party, then expect her to bring the car back to him? Why not just drop the girls off at the party, which was on campus where Mara also lived? Maybe it's not weird. It just seemed like the easier option in my opinion, I don't really understand that because she was clearly planning on drinking. They had just bought alcohol for this party. So it just seems like it would have been a safer option for Mara to be dropped off at the party rather than driving Fred's car. And it would have been a much better idea because eventually when Mara left this party around 2.30 a.m., she ended up getting into an accident. Mara hit a guardrail and luckily she didn't get hurt or hurt anyone around her, but I think it's pretty safe to say that she had been drinking. She ended up calling a tow truck and the car was towed to Fred's motel and Mara rode with the tow truck driver to his motel. And from what I understand, the police did show up to the accident scene, but she wasn't given any kind of a a ticket or a breathalyzer test, which seems weird to just about everyone who knows about this case, including myself, because they allowed her to leave this crime scene, or I mean not crime scene, accident scene, um, when she was probably drinking and they didn't even check to see if she had been drinking. Anyways, a lot of people find that really weird. I also find it really weird. So she got back to Fred's motel, and the next morning, Mara was feeling terrible about the accident, rightly so, and Fred said that he wasn't even mad about this because he was like, we have insurance, it's all good. Yet another thing that people find a red flag in this list of red flags, people don't believe that he wasn't pissed about this accident. Hitting the guardrail had caused about $10,000 of damage to his brand new car, And I'm having a hard time believing that he was like, oh, no worries, it's totally fine. You were driving drunk and wrecked my brand new car, but it's all good. Although personally, my dad is not much of a yeller. He was more of a, I'm just disappointed in you kind of guy. So maybe, which can we just say so much worse? Just yell at me. Saying you're disappointed in me is way worse. Maybe that's why they do it. It's weird dad psychology. Anyways, maybe he was that type of dad. But a lot of people think that there is something else that happened in that situation that he's not saying. I think that that's like digging for something that's not there. It's very plausible that he might have just been like, look, we have insurance. I'm glad that you're safe. We'll figure it out and moved on. A lot of people think that they maybe had some big explosive fight, but it doesn't seem to be the case. So Fred ended up getting a rental car and then he dropped Mara off at her dorm. 
Later that night, around uh, 11.30 p.m., Fred called Mara to let her know that the insurance company was going to total the car. It was all good, all fine, taken care of. Mara just needed to pick up some insurance claim paperwork, and according to Fred, Mara seemed totally fine, and everything was smoothed over between them. After Mara talked to Fred around midnight, she searched for directions to Burlington, Vermont on MapQuest. You guys, remember having to print out MapQuest directions? It, like, gives me anxiety to think about. If any of you are too young to have had to use MapQuest, it was just a website where you would put in an address and then it would give you directions that you'd print out and take with you before you could just type it into your phone. I would not have been able to get anywhere without it when I first started driving, and I would not be able to get anywhere without my smartphone, to be totally honest. Anyways, Mara searched for Burlington, Vermont, which is about three hours away from UMass. This brings us to February 9th, where things really get weird. I'm going to give you the rundown of her day, and then we will unpack some of these details. At 1 p.m., Mara emailed her boyfriend, Billy, saying, quote, I love you more, stud. I got your messages, but honestly, I didn't feel like talking to much of anyone. I promise to call you today, though. Love you, Mara. Right after she sent that email, she made a call to see about renting a condo in Bartlett, New Hampshire. This was a condo that she had traveled to with her family, so she was familiar with that area. This phone call only lasted a few minutes, and she didn't end up booking a condo. At 1.24 p.m., Mara emailed her work supervisor and her professors, saying that she would be out of town for a week because there had been a death in her family. She promised to contact them when she got back to the campus. And this is extremely odd because there was no death in her family, so she obviously was just looking for an excuse to get out of there. At 2.05 p.m., Mara called an automated service to get info about a hotel in Stowe, Vermont. At 2.18 p.m., Mara called Billy and left him a message promising that they would talk soon. After this, Mara packed up some clothes, textbooks, toiletries, and her birth control pills and left the UMass campus around 3.30 p.m. Then Mara drove to an ATM and took out $280, which was basically everything in her account, and then she purchased $40 of alcohol from a liquor store. There was security footage showing Mara at both of these places, and she was alone this whole time, and she didn't seem distressed. Like, it seemed like a totally normal trip to the ATM, trip to the liquor store. $40 is kind of a lot of alcohol, and Mara bought what I would personally call party drinks. She bought Bailey's Irish Cream, Kahlua Vodka, and a box of Franzia wine. The Bailey's and the Kahlua are both, like, mixers that you would put with something else, so it's weird for someone to purchase that and then go off alone. So, this detail makes a lot of people question if she'd planned to meet up with people or go to a party that night. After this, Mara left Amherst and headed toward New Hampshire. The last time she used her phone was at 4.37 p.m. to check her voicemail. A few hours later, at 7.27 p.m., police received a phone call from a woman named Faith Westman, who lived in Woodsville, New Hampshire, which was about 150 miles from UMass. She said that there had been an accident in front of her house. Mara had crashed her black Saturn into a snowbank and hit a tree on Route 112. Two other neighbors, Virginia and John Merrote, also saw that Mara was walking around outside her car looking at the damage. These witnesses also saw another one of their neighbors, Butch Atwood, stop and talk to Mara. Butch drove a school bus and was headed home for the evening when he saw her on the side of the road. So everyone noticed that it was Butch because he was in that school bus. So Butch stopped and asked her if she needed any help or wanted to use his house phone to call for help. Mara told him that she was fine because she had already called AAA and someone was on the way. And this is a weird detail because there was horrible cell phone service in this area and her phone didn't show any calls being made after 4.30 other than that call to her voicemail. Butch said that he knew that there was no cell phone service in the area, which is why he also called the police a few minutes later when he got home. 
Haverhill police arrived to the crash site at 7.46 p.m., and when the police sergeant, Cecil Smith, got to the car, he saw that the windshield was cracked and the airbags had deployed. The car was locked, and there was no sign of Mara. Sergeant Smith went to Faith Westman's house to see if she saw where Mara went, and Faith told him that she had seen Butch Atwood stop and talk to her, so he checked in with Butch, who told him that he'd left her waiting at the car. So, multiple people saw Mara, multiple people knew who she interacted with, but then suddenly, poof, within 10 minutes... She's nowhere to be seen. So Sergeant Smith drove around for a while, trying to see if maybe she'd started walking somewhere, but she was nowhere to be seen on that road. As they looked more at the car, it became clear that the box of wine had basically exploded all over the back seat, and there was also a Coke bottle that had what we can assume was red wine in it as well. Mara's phone, wallet, and keys were gone, and in the car were the clothes that Mara packed, her favorite stuffed animal, Diamond jewelry, makeup, a book called Not Without Peril, which was about a group of hikers climbing in the White Mountains in New Hampshire. And there was also those printed map quest directions to Burlington, Vermont. Police also found a towel that was part of Mara's roadside emergency kit stuffed in her exhaust pipe. Around 9 p.m., Mara's car was towed and the scene was cleared. Police assumed from the wine in the Coke bottle that unfortunately Mara had been drinking and driving, crashed the car, and then fled the scene to, so she wouldn't get in trouble. The next day, there was still no sign of Mara, and no one had heard from her. Around noon on February 10th, almost 24 hours since anybody had seen or heard from Mara, police put out a be-on-the-lookout report for Mara. Police tried to get in touch with Fred and left a message on his home phone, but Fred was working out of town, so he didn't have any idea what was going on until later that day when one of Mara's sisters called him on his cell and let him know what was going on. Fred contacted the Haverhill police and was basically told if she didn't turn up by the following morning, they would start a search, which... Is something that people point out as a mistake in this case, and I can't blame them, honestly. You hear it a lot in cases that someone can't be reported as missing until they've been gone for 24 hours, which just isn't true, from what I understand. And personally, I always say this, wouldn't it be better to be safe than sorry? Like, go ahead and search the area directly around her car. What's the harm in that? Because if their theory is basically that she wandered off into the woods at this point and got lost or something... So you just want to wait until she's been out in the freezing snow for a day and a half before you'll search. It makes no sense. Anyways, they made them wait. And then the following morning on February 11th, Mara had of course not shown up. No one had heard from her, so they started a search in the area where her car was found. Police brought search dogs and they tracked Mara's scent about 100 yards east of the car. Um, and then the scent was lost. This led police to believe that she got into another car because the scent trail abruptly ended. On the 11th, Fred flew into town, and so did Billy and his parents. The Haverhill police questioned all of them, and then the following day held a press conference where they said that Mara was listed as, quote, endangered and possibly suicidal. They also went to say, went on to say, quote, our concern is that she's upset and or suicidal. This statement didn't make Mara's family feel super comfy. It actually made them really mad because they all insisted that she wasn't suicidal and didn't like the police immediately jumped to that conclusion. A week after her disappearance, Fred and Billy were interviewed on NBC's American Morning, and this became a national known case. Something that seems like a really obvious step that was overlooked, uh, apparently the Haverhill police hadn't informed the Vermont police that they should probably keep an eye out for Mara since she had directions printed out to go to Vermont. It's pretty safe to say that that would have been a good place to search, but they didn't initially do this, which was really upsetting to Mara's family. Ten days after Mara went missing, the New Hampshire Fish and Game Department were brought in to help with the search. They did a ground search and searched with helicopters. They brought in search dogs, cadaver dogs, and a thermal imaging camera, but there was not even a small trace of anywhere that she could have been. 
There had also been some harsh criticism uh, with the police involved in this case because they refused to bring in the FBI to help, which makes me insane because there's a chance that this case is spread over a few states between her leaving from UMass, where she was living, New Hampshire, where she disappeared, and Vermont, where she could have been heading. But New Hampshire police denied the FBI, and I've said this before, and I'll say it a thousand more times, I'm sure, but seriously, that shouldn't be a thing, right? Like, the FBI comes in and says, hi, I think you're in over your head here. And for whatever reason, police departments can just be like, actually, no, get out of here. This case is mine. Like, it makes me insane. Moving on. So, now that you have a basic overview of the events that happened before and after her disappearance, let's dig a little deeper into the weird things that add even more confusion to the question, what the hell happened on February 9th to Mara Murray? Weird thing number one. When police looked into her movements before she left UMass, they obviously looked into the ATM in the liquor store that she stopped at, and that's when they realized that Mara had bought all of that different alcohol, and when they put that together, they realized that the vodka, Kahlua, and Bailey's Irish cream wasn't found in her wrecked car, meaning that she had to have taken it with her. So her wallet, keys, and phone were missing. Yes, totally makes sense. But why in the world would you take three big bottles of alcohol and start walking down the road with it? Weird thing number two. Apparently, when Billy was on his flight to New Hampshire, he missed a phone call and got the message when he landed. On this message, he heard what he described as someone whimpering and crying but not speaking, and then the call was just over. He was convinced that it had been Mara on that message. Eventually, police were able to figure out that the call had come from um, a calling card. So there was an AT&T calling card that came from the American Red Cross. This is very confusing to me because that's listed so many times. And I still don't quite understand what they mean. Do they mean that the call came from American Red Cross or that the AT&T card was registered to the American Cross? I don't know why it would matter either way. Um, since the police didn't have the PIN number for the card, they weren't able to get this exact location. So it doesn't really matter where the card came from. So the police also concluded that the message was just phone static and not someone crying or sniffling into the phone. And this call drives me nuts <laughs> because... It seems like it's never been explained that well. Apparently before Mara's phone was on Billy's phone plan, she would use calls or she would make calls using prepaid cards. So when Mara was at Billy's house for Thanksgiving a few months earlier, Billy's mom gave Mara a couple of those prepaid cards. This is another one of those elements that just might mean absolutely nothing. It might have just been a weird static phone call or it could be a huge piece of evidence, but we will never know because nothing else really came of it and there's not much more that they can do to dig into where that call came from. Just something to drive you nuts. Weird thing number three. When a search of Mara's dorm was done, they found that she had packed most of her stuff into boxes. She'd taken the art off the walls, and she had printed an email to Billy talking about the problems in their relationship. This printed email sends people on all kinds of theories, but according to Billy, they had the printed email was a thread of other emails that they'd sent to each other over two years earlier, talking about Billy possibly seeing other women. According to Billy and his family, they'd had some issues in their relationship a while back, but things were good now, and from what I understand, they were kind of on again, off again for a bit, but when Mara went missing, they were definitely on and possibly talking about getting married. Since her dorm was mostly packed, that printed email might have just been something she had laying around for a while that just happened to be there, and maybe it wasn't some big clue as to why she left, but of course, it's just another one of those things to add to the list of weirdness. The dorm being packed is very weird to me um, because it was the middle of the semester. So there's no reason that she would have needed to pack her stuff this early in the year. Uh, it is possible that that's a big red flag that points to the idea that Mara may have left without planning to return. Again, could be nothing, could be everything. It drives me, seriously, this case is so frustrating. That's why it's been talked about so much. 
Well, let's move on to weird things to obsess over part four. Uh, okay, the towel in the tailpipe. According to Fred, he told Mara to put the towel in the tailpipe as a temporary fix because it was smoking and he was worried about her getting pulled over. From what I understand, he never meant for her to drive the car very far with the um, towel in the tailpipe, just around campus. It seemed like everyone agreed that her car was kind of on its last leg and she shouldn't drive it more than she needed to other than like from her dorm to classes to work to her dorm. Um, a lot of people have very strong opinions about Fred telling her to do that, but from my point of view, I don't think he meant for anything bad to happen from it. He was just like, here, stick this in there until we can get it figured out. It seems like people try to paint Fred in kind of a bad light and make it seem like Mara was afraid of him, and maybe that's why she ran away, but from everything I've seen, Mara had a great relationship with her dad and her whole family. There are many, many stories of him going out to New Hampshire and searching on foot for signs of his missing daughter, and he has done his best to keep the investigation going. So I think that that's something that people read into a little bit too much, personally, in my opinion. No one yell at me. After those initial searches, things fizzled out pretty quick in this investigation because there basically just was no evidence to go on. It seemed like somehow Mara had disappeared into thin air, which we know is not a thing. Mara's family was pretty open about the idea that they felt like the police hadn't done enough initially, so they were happy to have any outside help. About a year after Mara went missing, a retired New Hampshire police lieutenant named John Healy offered his help along with a group of highly trained private investigators. John began organizing searches, including searches with cadaver dogs. Allegedly, Fred Murray worked closely with this group for a while, but they had some kind of a falling out because Fred tried to sue the New Hampshire State Police for the investigation documents, um, and they would not release them to the public, and John Healy and his group of PIs openly disagreed with Fred going after that information since the case was still very much open and still fairly new, so not all of the information could be made public at that time. Uh, this makes a lot of people angry, and I get that, but in some cases there is a lot being done behind the scenes that needs to stay private or it can ruin an investigation, especially one that is ongoing and, like I said, is only about a year old at this point. It's extremely frustrating, though, when it feels like nothing is really being done and it's really hard to tell if something is actually being done if it seems like there's nowhere to move forward, so I understand 100% where Fred was coming from, wanting to have that information. Um, unfortunately, though, this happened, and then there were some other issues with this group of PIs, uh, and he basically just burned that bridge. According to John, though, they haven't given up on Mara and are still doing everything they can to find answers, with or without Fred backing them up, which I think is kind of awesome. So, they did continue their search. In October of 2006, volunteers organized another search near Mara's crash site. Crash site. Uh, more specifically, an A-frame house that was about a mile from the road where she went missing. This house was specifically searched because back in June of 2004, a few months after Mara went missing, Fred was mailed a knife in the mail, which I don't think is a, is a legal thing to do, but, you know, whatever. Uh, so this had what appeared to be blood on it. Uh, this knife was sent by a man named Larry Moulton, who claimed that he found this bloody knife in his brother Claude's glove compartment. Larry said that he believed Claude had picked up Mara, took her to their house, which was the A-frame house, and killed her there. Fred took this knife to police, and at first they were like, get out of here, weirdo, that's not real evidence, but then he insisted a second time that they take the knife, and they did, and then it was never seen or heard about again. No one has any idea if that knife was tested. Uh, from what I understand, the police basically said that they couldn't release any info about the knife once it was in their possession. Apparently, Larry had some family members who came forward later and said that he was lying and that he made up the knife, or made it up, and that the knife was just rusty, he was just trying to get the reward money. However, after all of this, Claude wouldn't allow the house to be searched initially. Not suspicious at all, right? <laughs> well, in 2006, a couple years later, the house had new owners who did agree to let the volunteer PIs do a search. 
So they took cadaver dogs through the house and these dogs went nuts. Uh, a carpet sample was taken and handed over to the police, but no one really knows what happened to that carpet sample either. Somehow, that sample might have gone missing. Weird. So there was never a test done on that carpet sample and there was no more carpet in the house. It just disappeared into thin air. It really gives me the willies when we talk about these cases where evidence just vanishes like that. Like who at the police station threw out a big slab of carpet? Just to clearly state it, I am not saying this was done on purpose. There's a lot of rumors and speculation that the police had something to do with Mara's disappearance. And I honestly don't really buy into that theory. Do I think there was some sloppiness with the investigation and evidence? Absolutely, hell yeah. But I do wonder if this was more of a, like, incompetence versus involvement in her disappearance. And that's, again, why they should have let the FBI get involved. Okay, not going to get heated. Not going to get heated. Bring it down. Moving on. After that search in 2006, another search was done in 2016, so 10 years later, by one of the volunteer retired detectives named John Smith and the hosts of the Missing Mara Murray podcast. They were allowed to search this house, and they found what looked like blood on some of the wood panels inside of a bedroom closet. They were able to take some of the wood chips to a geneticist, and she performed the, a test on the wood chips that showed it was for sure human blood, and apparently it was blood from two different people. These wood chips were sent off to be DNA tested, but unfortunately, in 2017, information was released that the DNA was too far degraded to get a good match. This was just another frustrating dead end, but it did help get some renewed interest in Mara's case. Finally, in April of 2019, the FBI got involved in Mara's case, kind of. Another search was done at this A-frame house, and this time it did include the FBI. From what I understand, there was basically enough of a public outcry that this house should be searched, because of the weird thing with the knife in the mail, as well as the cadaver dogs alerting in certain areas of the house, and then that other search where they found what was possibly blood. Fifteen years after Mara went missing, the FBI and the New Hampshire State Police went into the A-frame house and performed a search, including digging down a few feet below the basement. Unfortunately, this search didn't turn up anything. The New Hampshire Police basically said that they were doing this search to check it off a list of possibilities, because they didn't feel like there was enough credible evidence to really think this was a viable possibility, but there was so much pointing in that direction and so many people were kind of asking for them to do this that they did take a step in that direction so that they could check that off as a list of possibilities. It's a bummer that they didn't find anything because Mara's family was really, really hopeful that there was something there, but it was a good thing because now they can move on to other possibilities and they don't have to keep worrying about that stupid house. It sucks, but it's better than having that question mark, you know? After that search, Fred said that he hoped this would be enough to get the FBI involved full-time on Mara's case, but from what I understand, that still has not happened. Since that last search in 2019, there haven't been any major breakthroughs, but the theories are plentiful, to say the least. So let's talk about some of the more reasonable theories. If you're bored one day and want to take a trip down that rabbit hole and look at some of the crazy ones, i do it. There's a lot of interesting things out there. Uh, but for today, we're just going to talk about the ones that seem the most plausible in my opinion. So, theory number one is that Mara was possibly suicidal and decided to run away. This one was a really hard pill to swallow for a lot of Mara's loved ones, and I completely understand why. People always say that this was impossible because Mara was happy and everything was going great, but we know that even people who seem happy can be struggling behind closed doors. Mara may have felt overwhelmed by the issues she'd run into with stealing and wrecking her dad's car, and I think that sometimes we all need a mental health break, and you need to take a breather for a minute, and it's really hard to tell your family that, and it's also really hard to tell your college professors. Sending an email saying, I have to go out of town for a week because there was a death in the family is so much easier than trying to explain needing a mental health break. 
Um, I feel like that, uh, that, at least that's my opinion. I feel like that makes sense to me. Uh, however, if that is why she left, I don't see how getting into a car accident was part of that plan. So even if she was possibly in that state of mind, it just doesn't make sense because where is she? Like, okay, moving on. Theory number two. There was a lot of speculation that Mara had a head injury from the accident and wandered off into the woods and died of hypothermia. Personally, I don't feel like that's a viable theory and I don't know why anyone would go to that conclusion because they didn't find any of her stuff. Like, okay, if she wandered into the woods and got hurt, fine. But then where is her body? Her wallet, her phone, her keys. Also, the three giant bottles of alcohol she was apparently carrying with her. I just don't see how anyone could have wandered far enough into the woods in 10 minutes because that's when the police showed up. And then by the next morning, she had wandered, what, 500 miles and they couldn't see her anymore? Like, it just doesn't make sense. They did a ton of searches. People went out every weekend for years to go search that area to look for any clue of her wandering into the woods. And, like, not even one tiny thing came up, so I just don't buy that theory. Theory number three. There are a lot of different variations on the theory that Mara ran away to get away from her boyfriend, Billy. One theory says that Billy was controlling and abusive and she may may have tried to run away to protect herself. There are rumors, no proof from what I understand, that she may have been pregnant with Billy's child and wanted to get away from him. I guess Mara had done an internet search on the effects of alcohol on a fetus and that made people freak out. Everyone thought that maybe she was pregnant and had been drinking and realized she was pregnant, but one of her other nursing student classmates said that it was for an assignment, so it doesn't seem like she was pregnant or that she was possibly pregnant. Uh, This is another one of those rumors that people just run with that doesn't make sense because there's not really any proof. So Mara was also extremely close with her family and I think that if that was the case she would have just turned to them for help and told them what was going on. It is worth mentioning that Billy had some pretty serious allegations against him after Mara's disappearance. Apparently multiple women came forward saying that he had sexually assaulted them And eventually, Billy was indicted on one count of felony third-degree sexual assault in 2019 when a woman came forward with a horrifying story. Billy was a U.S. Army major back in 2011 when he allegedly attacked this female co-worker. It's very weird because I could only find one article talking about this um, indictment, and there was a quick post on James Renner's website that is dedicated to Mara's case where he went into some details about the court day that Billy went to. So, So after that one article about the indictment, there's like nothing about that court case. So I don't know if that means that the charges were dropped. I don't know if they are still looking into it, uh, because that was in 2019, so it wasn't that long ago. Um, but trust me, I did all my best investigating, and there was nothing. So if you find anything, please let me know. Um, I just couldn't find anywhere that explained what happened after that. Now, this does not mean that he was abusive to Mara, but it does show a pattern of behaviors if there are women, multiple women coming forward, saying that something happened with Billy, allegedly. I'm going to leave it there because I don't want to do any more speculation without more information and spread false rumors, okay? Allegedly. All speculation. Not saying one thing or another. Moving on. Just protecting myself, okay? Theory number four. This is the theory that Mara ran away and is living a new life in Canada. This one comes up a lot in the theories and speculations. This theory is basically that Mara drained her bank account, packed up her things, and fled the country to Canada. This theory involves the idea that there was possibly another car following her, that she wrecked her car on purpose, and then she hopped into that car and they drove off into the sunset all the way to Canada. 
The police have said that this theory is an impossible, but it's highly unlikely because it would take a lot of planning and a lot of connections that they don't believe Mara would have had or had access to. So whenever this is a theory in a case, the missing person basically pulled a gone girl, it makes my head spin because 90% of the times I'm like, dude, no, there's no way that someone would perfectly plan this whole thing, lead their family to believe that she'd been heading to Vermont and then she purposely wrecked a car and then ran away to start a new life. Like that's impossible, right? But then there's this little 10% of me that's like, but what if she did? What if she really did plan it like that? Mara's family does not think it's possible um, at all because they feel like she would have just called eventually. They were a close family and they don't think she would have stayed hidden knowing that this search had been going on for all of these years with all of the press and all of the news coverage and all of that stuff. They just don't think she would have just stayed hidden and honestly, I don't really think she would have either, but we never know. You never know what is truly going on in someone's head. So to add fuel to that fire, a man who we're going to just call Haas said that he had apparently had a conversation with Mara where she talked about wanting to disappear and when he heard that she went missing, he basically was like, holy crap, she really did it. Haas was the assistant coach of Mara's college track team and from what I've read, Haas and Mara had a bit of an on-again, off-again fling situation. It's always referred to as an affair and I don't understand why because neither of them were married and they were both adults. Like, I don't know why it would need to be called an affair. It seemed to me that when Mara and Billy were, like, on a break, Mara would kind of hook up with Haas, and that's kind of it. But people love to throw around the rumors of Mara being promiscuous, which I hate. I hate that word. When she's a college student, excuse me, I'm losing my voice. She was a college student. She was exploring her options. It's not that abnormal or enough of a reason for her to want to run away. And it's this same old tale of, like, a girl who was allegedly exploring her sexuality that everyone wants to point fingers at. But if it were a college boy having multiple sexual partners, it would be like, he was a normal college boy. Alexa, play If I Were a Man by Taylor Swift. (laughs) That's all I'm going to touch on with that part of Maura's story. Again, you can go form your own opinion uh, with a quick invest in Google. Our fifth and final story, this is the one that I feel like is the most likely. Uh, I feel like Maura did plan to disappear for the weekend, whether that was just to be alone for a while or possibly meet up with someone. Really, the only reason that I think she might have been meeting up with someone was just because of the amount of alcohol she bought before she left. I don't think that she meant to wreck her car, and I think that when she initially told the neighbor not to call the police and she'd already called AAA uh, was because she didn't want the police to get involved because she didn't want to get in trouble for drinking and driving. Speculation, 100%, but that's just what makes sense to me. Um, It makes me think that she was possibly thinking, okay, I need to get out of here, sober up, and then come and get my car figured out later. And maybe that's why she took the other alcohol with her so that the cops wouldn't find it in the car. Maybe? Honestly, I have no idea. That's just a guess. It's all speculation because there's nothing that we can really go on. Also speculation, and this is a theory that a lot of people talk about, maybe she started walking down the road and decided to take a ride from a car that stopped and maybe she was just in the wrong place at the wrong time and got in the car with someone who meant to harm her. That's the theory that makes the most sense in my head because three months after Mara disappeared, a witness came forward and said that he remembered seeing someone matching Mara's description walking down the road that night and the search dogs also followed her scent down that road and then it stopped abruptly which police did believe that she got into a vehicle and that's why her scent just went away but if that's what happened then where did she go she could be anywhere like I said there are hundreds maybe thousands of message boards dedicated to Mara's case and they are all full of crazy questions and theories and ideas takes a quick google search down the rabbit hole to just go nuts and and look into all the different things here's the thing though Keeping these cases alive 
and keeping them in front of law enforcement minds is huge. We've seen so many cases solved because of the public support and public effort for these missing and murdered people who deserve to have an ending to their stories and their families deserve closure. So keep being creeps, keep talking about Mara, and I truly hope the Murray family gets some kind of an answer someday. I can't even imagine the heartbreak and the frustration that you would feel as the years go by. I just can't, uh, can't wrap my head around that. So that brings us to the end of this week's episode. I would love to know what theory makes the most sense to you. Do you have another theory that you think is possible? Uh, you can go and join the Creep Squad on Instagram at TGI Crime Day. And let me know over there. Come tell me your theories. Also, you guys, I caved and I made a TikTok just for this podcast. So if you want to go follow on TikTok, it's again at TGI Crime Day. Thank you so much for listening and I will talk to you guys soon. Bye.